if you're like most people, you likely have a LinkedIn profile, but are you using it as effectively as possible? Are you proudly and confidently showcasing your full capabilities? Many of us struggle with self-doubt when it comes to conveying information about ourselves on LinkedIn. This week, my guest, Daniel Alphon, shares insights and strategies to help you maximize your LinkedIn profile and overall engagement with the site. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Files. My name is Kim Menninger, and as an executive coach and former high-tech leader, my personal mission is to help women and others overcome imposter syndrome and advance your career with confidence. Each week, I interview a new guest to share how they've navigated self-doubt to achieve success. The more we share our stories, the more we destigmatize imposter syndrome, recognize that we're not alone, and empower ourselves to access the tools and resources that can help us. Thank you so much for listening and sharing. Welcome, Daniel. I am so grateful to you for reaching out to me, and I'm excited for this conversation. Before we jump in, would you be willing to share a little bit more about yourself? With pleasure. Thank you very much, Kim. I'm very glad to be a part of the uh, Imposter Syndrome uh, Files podcast. I'm Daniel. I'm uh, married to uh, to Leah, my wonderful wife, and I'm based in Israel. I'm a LinkedIn specialist, and I'll, I'll look forward to our chat. And I want to start, since you mentioned being a LinkedIn specialist, I want to start by asking you what you see as the connection between LinkedIn and how we show up there and imposter syndrome. It's a great question. I think um, confidence is a muscle, something I've taken from uh, one of uh, one of your, your uh, earlier episodes. And in order to have a strong brand, we need to be visible. That's also something I found on, on uh executivecareersuccess.com and what other platform could be more professional and more uh, powerful for professional women, for executives in general than LinkedIn. And I I found that many uh, executives lack or have strong self-doubt about themselves and it shows in the way they, the terms they use on LinkedIn and the actions they do or don't perform on LinkedIn. Mm. I think that's such an important angle on the conversation I've been having with folks about imposter syndrome because we tend to think about it in terms of how we physically show up in a particular interaction, but not necessarily how we're conveying ourselves to this broader universe of people out there on on LinkedIn. And I think it's, it's such a missed opportunity it is um, most uh, most clients and most uh, managers will look you up on LinkedIn even if they just Google your name then LinkedIn will be one of the very top results and a very a simple message to anyone listening would be don't let LinkedIn call the shots you as an executive have to call the shots and it's your job and it's your responsibility to show the best you can using LinkedIn and not just stick with the defaults that LinkedIn has. So if I may, I'd love to ask you, how did you become a LinkedIn specialist? What does your career trajectory look like? (laughs) I moved into LinkedIn. Um, um, I started using LinkedIn early in 2004. It was pretty new. And um, at one point as a salesperson, I simply found that 
without LinkedIn, it would take me hours to close my, my sale. And with LinkedIn, it shortened my sale cycle at least by 30%, just by knowing the name of the person I need to reach out to. And then I, I, I found it uh, interesting enough to deep dive and to see what's under the hood. It's a very powerful uh, system, as you know, over 800 million users and hundreds of new LinkedIn members since we started this conversation. Every second, two, two people sign up. Wow. So at one point, um, I started helping friends, and those friends brought me to, to speak in front of their sales, their sales force or their uh, executives. And uh, maybe part of the um, imposter syndrome I had was my need to specialize. Because when you specialize, it may be easier for you to know everything about a subject or know more about a subject than being no jack of all trades. Mm. So did that, do you feel like that has served you, that need to specialize? Absolutely. There, there are pro and cons, obviously, but I feel much better because mo most of my speaking, most of my uh, um, uh, gigs are inbound. People reach out to me and say, I, I got your name from someone who attended the conference or someone who heard you on XYZ. And it makes the easier it makes it easier to uh, um, to engage with that person, and it, it's I'm very glad I, I specialized and specialized in LinkedIn especially. Well, and it's funny because I think that that specialization pressure affects a lot of us because one of the things I hear a lot from people who struggle with imposter syndrome and people more generally is a fear that they won't have an answer to a question that is asked of them. And I'm curious what you think about that because LinkedIn is changing all the time in, in big and small ways. So even being a specialist, I can imagine requires a lot of staying on top of things. Um, you know, Do you feel confident in, in uh -huh. your ability to kind of stay, stay on, on track with everything that LinkedIn is doing? I need to uh, I need to watch what I say now, but I probably <laughs> let let me quote uh, a Forbes article you uh, you wrote back at the time about preparing for meetings. And there you you mentioned the power of of words, and we can go back to that maybe in, in a minute. And you don't have necessarily to have all the answers. You need to show up. And it doesn't um, make it uh, less professional to say, I wasn't expecting that question. Let me dig into that and get back to you. That's something that's natural and it's much better than trying to wing it. Yeah. Oh, thank you for reading that article. And I, I completely agree with you. Obviously, that was <laughs> a perspective that I firmly believe in. And I think that it makes people feel more connected to us too. Because if you claim to be an expert and you give false information or you overinflate your expertise, people can generally see through that and they will lose trust in you. Nothing is more important than trust in real life and on, on social and LinkedIn especially. So trust is is something we've worked you know for decades to gain. It's very it's very easy to destruct. It doesn't make sense to try to uh, to be more than what we are. What we are is enough. I love that. 
I love it. So when we think about the ways that LinkedIn is being used today, and there are lots for the average leader, um, particularly let's just say even for the purposes of this conversation, the average female leader, what do you think we misunderstand about LinkedIn or don't fully appreciate about the the power of being on LinkedIn? Well, that's a very tough question. I'll try to, to answer it to, to the best of my knowledge. Um, there, there are many misconceptions about LinkedIn. One misconception is that our company page is more important than our individual profile. And for individuals, their profile is much more important than their company page, even if they had a company with 50 or 100 people. A second misconception is about the quality versus quantity, and that's related to the connection strategy we may have on LinkedIn. The third would be to think about LinkedIn as a CV or as a resume, whereas we can think about it as a website. Anyone visiting our website has to see what we offer, and they, there has to be a clear call to action there. And lastly, very quickly, Content is more important than advertising on LinkedIn, and time is more important than paying LinkedIn. We don't necessarily have to pay LinkedIn. The premium account is not something any executive should start with. On the contrary, they need to get their feet wet and understand how LinkedIn works, and that requires time. Once they know how their system works, then they will see the limits of the uh, free account, but the free account is overwhelming. And most executives will never discover more than 10% of it. Mm, I think that's a powerful point. I get asked that a lot of, is it worth paying for the LinkedIn premium? And I think a lot of it depends on what you use it for, right? And if you're barely using LinkedIn today, you're right. The free features are probably more than enough. <laughs> if you look at the way you built your own profile, then many of the excellent elements there are, are free to use. Anyone can, can just use them. You have a great banner that doesn't take, that doesn't require a premium account. You have a very strong headline that only needs imagination and, and thoughts. You have featured um, uh, the podcast in other uh, other media. Nothing really requires a premium account in order to have a strong presence on LinkedIn. Once you see the limits of the free account, if you, like you said, you use LinkedIn a lot, then it may make sense to consider paying. But if you only start and you pay LinkedIn, you will not even appreciate what, what the premium account gives you, I'm afraid. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And I want to go back for a moment to what you were saying earlier, too, about the company page versus the individual page. And one of the things that I've seen as well, so for, for people who work for a different company, it's not their, they're not the owner of the company, let's say, a lot of the real estate on their own page is taken up with positive talk about the company itself, right? It's almost like a commercial for the company as opposed to the individual. And I can see why in some cases people may 
choose that path. Maybe they're in sales and they think that that's an important message for their potential customers to see when they check them out. Maybe their company is actively monitoring LinkedIn profiles and making uh, or setting limits around what can be said in, in the profile. But can you talk a little bit more about why it's so important to have your own brand in your page and not just be promoting your own company? With pleasure. There, there's a balance there. Okay. First and foremost, we need to un- understand that as an executive, our LinkedIn profile belongs to us. We may work for a company, but the company has probably not created that LinkedIn profile. And we will keep that LinkedIn profile after we leave that company. So there's nothing wrong with mentioning what the company does. And like you said, when you're, when you're in sales, it's probably, it probably makes sense. But if you only uh, stress what the company does and there's nothing to be seen about what your achievements are, then you are underutilizing that powerful platform. And in, in general, the, the natural actions for LinkedIn uh, users is to connect as an individual. I can look at your own profile. I can decide whether I'd like to send you uh, a connection request. And the company page is pretty static. And unless the company employs thousands of people, the, the, nothing on the page will be as important as the executive's uh, individual profiles because in most cases, they will have a lot more connections or followers than their company page will ever have. Yeah, I think those are some really important points. In particular, what resonates with me is the idea of your LinkedIn profile transcending any individual place that you work. That is a representation of you. I mean, in the same way that a resume would be, but I think in a more personalized social way. Can you talk a little bit more about the difference between a resume and a LinkedIn profile and what... What, if anything, you might do differently to talk about your background or yourself there? Um, in some cases, uh, um, executives make a, a mistake of having a fully detailed resume and their LinkedIn profiles will only have highlights. And that doesn't make sense because one of those versions is better. So you simply ask yourself, Kim, would, would, would you rather show someone your resume or your LinkedIn profile? And if your answer is your resume because your resume details about your achievements, then it doesn't make sense to hide those achievements on LinkedIn. You can take as much as you like to think about the, the, the way you, uh, you explain what you do, but your LinkedIn profile can make the CV redundant. And the call to action should not be, I would like to get your CV to see whether it could be a fit for us to schedule an interview. The call to action should be, Kim, I'd like to schedule an interview with you because what I've seen on LinkedIn makes sense for us. Again, it's, it's something that doesn't require money. It requires you know, a copy and paste uh, procedure that will take most executive less than 15 minutes. And they don't have to ask for anyone's permission. What's funny that I'm thinking about, not, I don't mean funny, um, haha, but what I'm thinking as you're saying that is that one of the common responses that I hear from women in particular is, but if I put it out on LinkedIn, 
then somebody who I work with may read it and think, yeah, she's not all that great. (laughs) Or yeah, that was, that was a team effort. That wasn't her effort. They're worried that people are going to start to second guess how they're describing themselves. And it becomes this beyond humility, right? This effort to, to soften how we talk about ourselves. Okay, so there's a whole spectrum there. Okay, the, the idea is not to uh, to lie on our LinkedIn profile more than it is to lie on our resume. We should tell the truth, but we should definitely find the best achievements we have, and those achievements can be part of the way we present ourselves on LinkedIn. And something that uh, I've seen um, on both resumes, if you'd like, and also on on LinkedIn profile is that executives and, and women executives in uh, in particular, in many cases, they focus on their responsibilities. Whether what's more powerful would be to focus on their achievements. So can I give you just a quick exa- example? Yes, please. So we would see something like, uh, what have you done in, in the last six months? What I've done was producing reports. So I would dive into uh, spreadsheets and, and get that data. And if you ask, so what has that resulted in? And you wait, then you may hear something like, okay, the CEO would, would sit, certainly expect the, um, the reports. And then you ask another time, what has that resulted in? And, and the lady would say, oh, but that it helped us sell more last quarter. And where was that? In a strategic market. And by how, how much? Oh, I, think, I think it was $4 million last quarter. So the report is maybe the means, but the result in many cases should be something we can quantify. It could be saving time. It could be reducing costs. It could be... Uh, improving the customer satisfaction, and it could be increasing sales. So going back to the terms uh, you you refer to, we don't have to blow our own horn and say, I sold an additional $4 million uh, last quarter, but I contributed to those sales, or I initiated that, or I helped the company achieve more is something anyone should feel comfortable doing. And it really requires just looking at the responsibilities they think they uh, um, wrote in their LinkedIn profile or their resume and asking, so what? What has that resulting in? And if you're patient enough, you know, with guys, it may take twice. You need to ask them twice. In la- with ladies, it could maybe end up after five or six times but you will get something amazing if you're patient enough. And the fifth or sixth time would be a really aha moment where you understand the benefit of what the executive has done. So just move away from responsibilities and the sentence should look like the result. And the report is the means, but your specialty is not the report. Your specialty is analysis or recommendations, or things that uh, help the bottom line. And that's also something that only requires some thinking on our side, nothing else. I love what you're saying here. And you actually use the exact expression or question that I use. And I don't mean it to sound harsh, but 
so what, right? So what? And just keep asking yourself, so what, until you get to that powerful results. As long, if your LinkedIn profile, in my mind, sounds like a job description, then you're not capturing the full power of what you bring to your role. You know, that's so true. We, we, we see that many uh, people with uh, imposter syndrome ask themselves questions about should be, should I even apply to that job because I don't have, you know, all the necessary skills or, and, and in many cases, uh, I'm sorry for, for saying this, but for many guys, if we're able to read the job descriptions, then we're qualified. And many other executives will look at it and say, okay, but it says five years and I only have four and a half. So maybe I probably should not apply. And, you know, if you don't apply, you don't, you don't, you don't even, even get a negative answer. It really requires to go out there and be uh, willing to understand that in some cases you will succeed. In some cases you will fail, but you have tried. And next time you will succeed. You need to not to stop asking yourself, should I really ask for what I'm worth or should I price myself lower? Can I ask for that promotion in that company or can I use, can I have that title when I'm negotiating my, uh, my next move is something that will help your career in the long term. Many questions that imposters ask themselves are hurting their chance of, of helping others in the, uh, in the marketplace. You're absolutely right. And when I think about what you're saying, I think of it as almost adopting a scientific, maybe for lack of a better term, a mindset where you're experimenting. And if we attach our self-worth to the outcome, it makes it far more difficult to take the risk of applying for that job, asking for that salary, asking for that title, then if we simply look at it as a trial and error experiment to get information, to just be curious of, hmm, how high can I go? Right? <laughs> how qualified am I for this kind of a role? And if the answer is no, okay, now I know what the upper limit is and I'll just kind of keep working my way down and, and figure it out. But like you said, the answer is always no if you don't try. A lot of executives are afraid of failure, but many executives are even afraid of success. So they'd rather not commit or they'd rather not start because it helps them stay, you know, in a, in a nice uh, comfort zone. Whereas getting out there and applying or negotiating or asking for this and that it, it takes a lot. It, it makes it hard for anyone, especially someone with a, with an imposter syndrome. But as when you start doing this, you'll notice that nothing happens. Okay, the world will not stop, and no one will surprise that you asked. In fact, people will say, "What have what is taking you so long to do this?" <laughs> That's a very good point. I think you're absolutely right. And that fear of success is real, especially because there is so much pressure for those of us who struggle with imposter syndrome to be perfect sometimes or to, to perform in ways that aren't realistic. And that bar just keeps getting raised 
the higher we go through the ranks. And so sometimes there is this fear of, uh oh, if I become a you know, a VP instead of a director, now the pressure is even higher. Now I have to show up even more. So maybe I'll just stay where I am. <laughs> you know, the toughest ba- uh, barrier is, is, is self-inflicted. Yes. It's, it's not necessarily our peers or our managers or even our clients. It's something we, uh, the change that we impose on ourselves. And it's very liberating to try and, you know, look back and say, you know what? I've accomplished this today. I've managed to, to this, take this, this baby step in order to overcome my, my imposter syndrome. And I think that maybe tomorrow we'll be able to take a second baby step. Exactly. Baby steps are key. Absolutely. Uh, I want to ask you a question too about recommendations. How, how important are they? Uh, I would say that they're important if you're using LinkedIn a lot. So I would, I would look at the ratio between your connection, the number of connections you have and the number of recommendations you would have first. The second thing I would look at is whether you have written recommendations for, say, 20 people and you have received recommendations for 40 versus four. Mm-hmm. Have you written many more recommendations than recommendations that you have received or not? And lastly, the body of the uh, recommendation, the ideal recommendation could be uh, um, could have the elements of I've worked with Kim for uh, in during three conferences where she spoke to our uh, executive teams about confidence in the workplace, and I've I I am still amazed by the impact that she has done because a because of A, B, and C. So if it's specific, when the person who makes the recommendation explains how he has come to work with you, then it, the recommendation itself is likely to be read in a more meaningful way. It's, when, when it's specific, it makes it a lot more powerful. Do you recommend asking for a recommendation? What do you think my answer is going to be? <laughs> well, you know, my thought is, give a recommendation first and then someone will be more likely to respond. But I also think going back to what we talked about, you don't ask for, you don't get what you don't ask for. <laughs> right. There's, there's a wonderful episode uh, I listened to with, uh, with uh, Laura um, Barrett Brown, I, th- I think where the, the title was uh, what would a successful guy do? <laughs> And the successful guy would ask for the the recommendation. If you don't ask, you don't get. Now, I would emphasize that to ask for the recommendation is something I would advise executives to do outside of LinkedIn. In other words, if you decided you'd like to ask Joe for recommendation, then don't use the boilerplate um, email that LinkedIn sends. But reach out to that person outside of LinkedIn Explain what you what your request, and when Joe says, "You know what? I'd like to do that, but I'm not sure how." Then you can send Joe the the um, message from LinkedIn asking him to write the, that recommendation. And once once you move from one company to another, or after you've completed a significant project with a customer, that's the best time to ask for the, that recommendation. 
the more you wait, the tougher it will become for them to remember the facts, to remember the figures, to remember the dates. And there's a peak where, where it, it makes a lot of sense for someone to write a recommendation for you. To, so don't miss the, the that boat. That's a very good point too. Timing is really important because people's memories fade. Things just aren't as, uh, the impact isn't as high if it's been a long, longer period of time. For people who are perhaps either in career transition or keeping an eye on new opportunities, what is the most effective way for them to get noticed by recruiters or you know other people who may be looking for someone with their background without shouting, I'm looking for a new job? What you've just said is very important. Uh, talent should not say, I'm looking for something else. Um, but what we could do is make sure that anyone bumping into our profile understands what can what we can bring to the table. And, and in one of the videos uh, uh, you've produced uh, about maximizing your seat at the table, the first step, you mentioned that knowing what you want is key. That's the very first step. If you don't know what you're after, then LinkedIn will not be able to help you. And if you need some career counseling in order to decide what your next step should look like, then take the time to, to do that. And then you'll find the execution on LinkedIn to be a lot easier and a lot, a lot more powerful. Other points to, re to remember is that um, a simple exercise could be um, make a list of, say, 60 terms you find in your ideal uh, dream job. So let's say um, I would be looking for a COO position and I would look up on LinkedIn or Glassdoor or whatever, three uh, different job descriptions. And I would write down, say, 20 terms from each of those job descriptions. So it would, it would, it would have logistics and purchasing and managing and leadership. Blah, blah, blah. And once we have that list, then and only then we go back to our profile and we check how many of those terms are there on our profile. And chances are we do have many of them, but probably not all of them. So the smart thing to do would, would focus on a couple of key terms and then ask yourself a very simple question. Where is the most natural place for me to include that term somewhere in my profile? And that could take, you know, 10 minutes and you would help people find you via search. Search is big on LinkedIn. There are billions of searches on, on LinkedIn. There are other ways when you publish content, when you share things, when you write articles, when you speak uh, um, on, on podcasts or, or virtual conferences outside of LinkedIn. And also, um, if you're helpful on the uh, activity you have on LinkedIn, all that helps your visibility. So what do you think about engagement? You were talking before about the number, you know, sort of quality versus quantity. Do you recommend that people connect with anybody who's open to connecting? Do you think that it's important to know the people that you're connecting with? My short answer would be, as long as you're consistent, it doesn't really matter. 
So if you decide to go for quantity and you aim for 30,000 connections, that's the limit that LinkedIn uh, has today, then you will get a lot of visibility. You'll get a lot of exposure because anything you share on LinkedIn will, is likely to be seen by many, many people. But there's a second and very powerful uh, way for you to get headhunted, and that's via introductions. In other words, if we have a mutual friend or someone that has worked with you, say, back at EMC or during the psychology studies or, or whatever, and I know that person and I'm able to reach out to them and ask them about you, that could lead into a meaningful introduction and that could lead into a contract, even if you haven't advertised the job. Mm. So quality works, quantity works. Try not to stay in between because when you try to aim for both, you end up in many cases having very little of either. Interesting. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Uh, and do you think there's any magic to reaching out to someone directly? So let's say you don't have a connection, but you see somebody that you think is exactly the person that you want to be talking to. Um, I'm sure you get all, all sorts of uh, messages that look exactly like they could be sent to someone else. So if you take the time to research, in, in some cases, you will not find a mutual connection. Agreed. But if you do the research and try to write a short and sweet message that will make the person say, huh, how does that person know so much about me? Even if it's, you know, four lines. There's a saying, uh, I, I don't have, I didn't have a lot of time, so wrote a long letter. Most of our job when we reach out in a cold way is really the editing. If we manage to write a four-line email that will make the person who reads it during, you know, he's riding the elevator stop and say, hey, I, I forgot I needed to, to get off here, then that's more powerful than not showing that you read, not showing that you've uh, researched a company. And generally speaking, if I see that text and I think you can send it to someone else, I would not give it more than five seconds. So take the time to personalize it and shorten it. And if you get any sort of reply, you're in a good position to maybe engage with that person and make them curious about you. And that could lead into another meaningful conversation. I love that. I think that's a great test of, is, is this something that could have been sent to anybody? That's a good way for us to check ourselves before we push the, the send button. <laughs> you know, even ask yourself, if I can receive this, would I really be tempted or compelled into reading this, into wanting to know more about the person? We, we don't like to be sold to. So why can't, why can't we understand that the, the person we are reaching out to, or in, in many cases, they're, they're busy, they're, they're crazy busy, they're executives, thought leaders, whatever. They don't have time for this. So it's our job to make it understand, to make them understand that we have made the research and we should engage with them. And it should be, they should be curious about you. The, the message cannot answer all their questions. It only has to make it interesting enough to know what, is, what other things does that, 
does that person uh, know about us and maybe could help us? Let's chat. That's a really good point too. And I think about pacing because, you know, as they say, don't, don't propose marriage on a first date. <laughs> don't, don't go right to the, the end of the relationship or the, the peak of the relationship in the first message too, right? You want to you pace yourself. <laughs> a very quick tip about it would be to follow someone on LinkedIn. It goes back to the connection strategy. If we're interested in, in an executive, then when, what we could do is simply go to their profile and follow them. And that will, that will mean that in our feed, we will see every single public action the executive makes on LinkedIn, and it increases our chances of being timely and maybe reach out to them in a meaningful way because we will consume a lot of their content and we'll see things they comment on and we'll understand better what's important for them and what's not important for them. Great, great points. Absolutely. And any other features or sort of secret LinkedIn areas that we underutilize? Um, I'm, I'm, I really hope that when I say this, LinkedIn doesn't discontinue the service. Uh, because every time I recommend something, I see it disappearing. Uh, <laughs> but there's a very uh, cool thing called... Uh, um, a video cover. And that means when you go to my profile, if you just wait a second, you will see a video of mine, a short video, 20 seconds. And that even that doesn't require anything other than uh, producing that video and using our, our LinkedIn app. It doesn't, you don't have to have a premium account for that. And that's a way for you to engage with, especially if you, if you're a storyteller or if you have your skills are related to video producing, then it really makes sense for you to uh, stand out from the crowd and do something unique. And that's very simple. Adding a cover to our, uh, to our profile is something my estimate is less than 0.3% of LinkedIn users actually do. Wow. I just took a note on that because I didn't, I wasn't aware of that either. So I learned, learned something new. I'm thankful. <laughs> Daniel. That's my next step. <laughs> so I'll, I'll look you up in a week. <laughs> you can hold me accountable for that. Uh, so do you have any final thoughts, especially as it relates to this idea of just being confident when you are presenting yourself to this global audience out there on LinkedIn? Um, I think that I've um, found so many of the previous episodes that you've uh, produced helpful. I think it's a it's a baby step to anyone before they you know they go on the global stage and and uh, and make uh, make a splash. Um, get your feet wet. Listen to the previous previous episode of the Imposter Syndrome uh, Files. Your future career career. Well, thank you for that. Thank you so much, Daniel. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support and this conversation, which I have no doubt will be helpful to many. I know you and I were talking earlier about some resources that you offer. Can you say a little bit more about your freebie or what we can find on your website? 
With pleasure. Uh, my website is danielalfon.com. That's the D-A-N-I-E-L-A-L-F-O-N. And the website has a number of free articles and a freebie uh, right in the, in the homepage. The freebie is uh, about uh, producing a killer headline, a profile headline on LinkedIn. Um, that's the, you know, the real estate that's most valuable on our LinkedIn. And in general, many executives only use the latest positions they have. And you and I know that in some cases, that's not the best way they could uh, show their um, achievements to the world. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to make sure that those links are included in the show notes for anybody who is interested. And thank you again, Daniel. I'm so grateful. Thank you very much, Kim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Imposter Syndrome Files. If you're listening to this, chances are you struggle with imposter syndrome or other confidence issues too. Please know that you are in great company. As an executive coach and former high-tech leader, I spent years battling imposter syndrome. There were times in my corporate life when I was absolutely sure that this was the moment that everyone would figure out that I didn't belong in the room. But it never happened. And through the years, with the help of research, coaching, and other resources, I've learned to help myself and others overcome self-doubt and advance our careers with strength and confidence. If you'd like to continue this conversation, please join my Leading Women Facebook group, where women of diverse roles, levels, and backgrounds come together to ask questions, share challenges, and support one another in a safe, trusted space that's difficult to find in the workplace. Check out the link in the show notes for more information on how to find us. And please join us again next week for another episode of the Imposter Syndrome Files.